And so we've been very transparent. You know, we, we leave it up to the chairs or the clinical leaders to then share the provider level detail, whether they want it blinded or, or open. But we're just trying to figure out how do we take it to the next level to, to create the additional capacity that everybody is demanding. Welcome to the Better Care Podcast, where we tell the stories of clinicians, healthcare leaders, and innovators who are improving the way clinicians work and deliver care. On today's episode, Evidence Care's Carol Howard interviews Leanne Liska, Chief Operating Officer and Interim President for Vanderbilt University's Adult Hospital. Carol and Leanne do a deep dive into the areas of length of stay and capacity management as Leanne describes the various processes, initiatives, technology, and personnel that go into operating an academic level one trauma center. If you're involved in hospital operations and capacity management, you're going to get a ton of value out of this conversation. Enjoy this episode with Carol Howard and Leanne Liska. Welcome, everyone, to the Better Care Podcast. My name is Carol Howard. I am the VP of Clinical Rev Cycle Integration at Evidence Care. And I want to introduce Leanne, who is a friend of mine, but she's also a leader who has touched my life. She's made a difference in me. I used to work with Leanne. She draws people to her and helps them feel and become stars, in my opinion. She's beautiful both inside and out. So thank you, Leanne, for joining us. And Leanne is the COO and interim CEO of Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. She has over 38 years of health system management experience in a variety of hospitals with a background in hospital operations, physician practice management, as well as ambulatory services. She received her Bachelor in Communications and Executive Master Degree in Business Administration from Cleveland State University. And she's well awarded and she's just fantastic. So welcome Leanne to the Better Care Podcast. And today we are going to be talking about length of stay in capacity management at hospitals, which I think is an important topic these days because you have to ensure as an executive that there's availability in your facility, that your facility is operating efficiently, that you're not wasting resources. You try to reduce the length of stay because that helps profitability of hospitals. But it requires a lot of different things. Technology, personal, personnel, I should say policies, procedures, process, data, reporting. There's so much that goes into it. So I'm really curious about what Leanne is going to tell us about what she's doing at Vanderbilt Medical University Medical Center. And Leanne, why don't you tell us a little bit about Vandy? Sure, I'd be happy to. First of all, thank you for that warm welcome. And it's great to be with you all today. And, and Carol, I feel the exact same way about you. Um, we will be uh, lifelong colleagues, I believe. Um, so I am pleased to serve as the COO and the in interim president for the Vanderbilt University Hospital. So that's really the adult hospital within the VUMC system. So Vanderbilt University Medical Center uh, is really a, a, an entire health system. We have um, $4.7 billion in revenue, seven hospitals, 200 clinics, 1,700 licensed beds, um, and about 3 million patient visits. 
at the adult hospital, which is sort of the an- you know the anchor adult hospital. We are um, close in proximity to our children's hospital and also to our psychiatry hospital. But at the adult hospital, we have 2.4 billion in net patient service revenue. We've got 726 licensed beds, 39,000 surgical procedures, about 45,000 discharges, 69,000. ED visits, uh, a big training program, over 1,000 residents, got um, 70 operating rooms. We do about 5,300 births. And then because we're such a big um, transfer center in Middle Tennessee, we have about 12,000 inbound transfers that we accept every single year. So that's why I think length of state management and capacity management is such an important topic because um, not only is the health system growing, but Nashville, as you know, in general, is just growing every week and every year. And so being able to serve both our local patients and those that are moving into the community is a real challenge. And so this is, it's, uh, capacity is an important topic for us. So I'm really curious, Leanne, how does Bandy go about measuring and tracking the average length of stay? Is it by different types of patients or medical conditions? What does your facility do? Well, we do have a, a very extensive tracking mechanism, and we think about length of stay in general as first a quality measure because it's really about access to care and then making sure that we're minimizing prolonged exposure in the hospital environment. So we like to think about length of stay as really a, a leading effort for um, quality and safety, but it also has direct financial impacts, as you can imagine. And if we can reduce length of stay where it's appropriate, we can serve more patients at a lower cost. And so um, just like many adult, uh, or I'm sorry, many academic medical centers, we also look at length of stay by uh, with a case mix adjustment because length of stay, GMLOS is, is not relevant in all circumstances. So we take our average length of stay and we do that by service lines and or we call them um, PCCs, patient care centers here, but it's essentially the same in the community as, as a service line. So we look at our average length of stay, then we look at our average CMI for that same service line, and then we adjust the length of stay. So, I mean, it's, it's essentially, if you looked at our medicine patient, we might have 5.89 uh, days of an average length of stay, and our average CMI for that group might be 1.7. So our CMI adjusted length of stay is going to be about 3.48, and we use that as our benchmark. And then we, we set a threshold, a target, and a reach goal for every, um, every PCC so that every chair, every um, executive owns the overall CMI adjusted length of stay goals and then specific improvement goals for their segment. And um, we right now, as we set our goals for fiscal year 24, we're an academic health center, so we always start our fiscal year in July. We look at 2019 as sort of a, a, our last normal year, and then we look at, ha- at FY23, and we compare those two, and then that's how we set our goals. And then we look at that every single week. We also use Visient, which is a sort of a consortium membership organization to also set observed to expected goals. So I would just say we have lots and lots of ways of measuring it, but it's very detailed down to the provider by CPT and then uh, also by DRG. Related to that, when you find a grouping, either the service line or physician or whatever, that has a prolonged length of stay, What strategies do you employ to identify and address those factors that are contributing to that increased length of stay? Uh, We do look for outliers. So so we are organized within segments with an associate chief of staff, an associate operating officer, and an associate nursing officer. And they are really the ones that we have working with our um, hospital teams 
to really deep dive into their length of stay. So sometimes things will just pop out. It might be a particular provider. It might be a particular um, way that a team is configured. And we have a lot of hospitalist group here as well. So we're very transparent with our data. So our data, we are sitting down with everyone, sharing it with them. It's creating a lot of questions. It's why in our surgery segment, we look at it by CPT. In our other segments, it, it may actually just be by team, not even by DRG, because there are so many different DRGs, let's say, in the medicine segment. So we do um, transparent data provision and uh, looking at it at the provider level. But in real time, we also have escalation tactics and, and pathways within the hospital. So if a, if a particular patient is having a very long length of stay, uh, we, we want to be able to intervene and remove those barriers. Uh, we look at outliers in general. Um, anytime we have patients who are well beyond their estimated length of stay, we we watch them closely to see what we can do as an administrative team to remove those barriers. And then I would say post-discharge, we're always looking at uh, our avoidable days report You know, with our UM partners. That's very important to see if any patterns are emerging either by team or by unit or by provider. We usually don't find those on the provider level, but it, it could be um, illustrative if we need more case management or some more support on a particular unit. And then, you know, believe it or not, we do have patients who no longer meet medical necessity but refuse their safe discharge plan. Believe it or not, some people like to just stay. Uh, and, you know, there's a whole HIN process around that. The hospital issued notices of uh, non-coverage that can be applied. We don't like to use that. But if they're no longer meeting uh, medical necessity and they're refusing their discharge, that's challenging because we've got other patients waiting for those beds. So I, I would say in partnership with our transition of care, like management uh, office, uh, that's our case management office. We do a lot of case-by-case -case review of anybody who might be in a, in a very long status. And then, of course, there are patients who just don't meet, are, they're not medically uh, ready for discharge. Right. And so we've got to keep them. They, you know, their care plans keep changing or their care itself or their clinical condition changes. And th those are not people we worry about. We just will track and make sure that the documentation is matching so I have two questions related to what you just talked about. The first one was about when you discuss sitting down with the physicians and being very transparent with them, with the data, and you can slice it in different ways, um, how old is that data when you present it to them? I'm just curious. It's pretty recent. We generally look at the prior month, okay. um, and then we'll look at the entire fiscal year. And again, uh, we can we can get into a lot of detail with all of the with all of the data, but the physicians are very engaged. They're very excited to see their data. Um, you know, start, of course, with the leaders because we don't want this to be punitive in any way. We want it to be informative. And, and some obvious things pop out, like maybe, gosh, this CMI seems very low for this type of surgery. We need to really look at the documentation. And, and in some cases, we've missed where uh, we haven't had the comorbidities or conditions attached to that. That was a great find. Right. That helps them in their CMI. It explains the length of stay. So um, they've been very engaged. So I would say it's it's pretty dynamic. We have a whole Tableau report. That's great. And so when you're talking with the physicians, are, is your clinical documentation improvement team also involved? In some cases. Okay. okay. I'm just curious because when you talk about case mix index being a little bit low, and maybe if you're comparing light physicians with the same DRG and one's higher than the other, it makes me curious about rates to the CDI queries. <laughs> well, it, it does. And we have that information as well. And I would say that the response rate actually is quite good. So we, we, we're we just looking for all of those patterns. But in fact, the example that I gave you where we had a high intensity surgery that didn't have the CCs that we expected, we were able to go back to the care 
um, documentation team because initially it's a very small meeting, you know, because you're just trying to in, inform and, and uh, be transparent with the data to better understand, you know, was it the physician documentation or was it actually the coding that led to not having um, the intensity that we expected with the CMI? And it, it was a very fruitful discovery. So it, we're not always going to find that, but those kind of patterns are easy to fix. Wonderful. So, okay. So my second question is, because of COVID and everything that was going on, it seems like the rehab beds or skilled nursing facility beds are pretty full. And it's difficult to get the patients discharged, hence your avoidable day reports. But are you finding that's easing up? Do you have any strategies that you use related to getting those patients out when you talk about intervening and like helping remove what the barriers are? Is that related to the SNPs and getting patients where they need to be post-acute care? Uh, I would say that there is a relationship there. I, I do think it's getting better. Of course, um, staffing some of these post-acute care sites have, has been a challenge nationally. Also, getting the approvals from the payers so that you can then move a patient to a post-acute site is also uh, sometimes a challenge. I would say it's getting getting better. We've got great partnerships. You know, we have a, a home health joint venture. We've got a great rehab partner. We've got great partners in the LTAC space. So we do pretty well in terms of those types of safe discharges. The other thing that that we have done that a lot of hospitals have, so this isn't unique, but we have a, a hospital at home program uh, that we started two years ago. Uh, we did it under the waiver for Medicare with COVID, but we've been able to continue that. And that's actually been very helpful too. Many of our commercial payers don't recognize hospital at home, even though it's a lower cost of care, but our patients certainly enjoy it. And that's been a big success to relieve some of our capacity. So I would say, I would say our post-acute care placement is better than it was. Great. Are there any specific initiatives or programs in place to streamline patient? Well, we just kind of started, I, I kind of led right into this. Maybe you already answered it, but no. streamlining patient discharges in improving the overall discharge process. Yeah, I would say this is this is one of the things that I, I feel like we do very well. You know, and of course you want to do it in a way that doesn't result in, you know, readmissions. But we have a, a really great, we call it our operations control center, our OCC, but it's really our little our hub, our internal hub for managing patient flow, bed, bed placement, et cetera. It's where our, you know, organize some of our transfers. So we actually set a goal several years ago for discharges by 11. That's not a new tactic. Most hospitals will use it. But we actually set goals by department and by segment and by our patient care centers. And it really worked. And so our, our they had been fairly stable for years. And then they really started to climb. So, uh, you know, very, again, very transparent sharing of data. And they really excelled. It's why this year's um, chair goal is really length of stay rather than just just discharges by 11. So that has been a great success. The other thing that's been really successful is our discharge lounge. And so we had a discharge lounge that was episodically staffed. And rather than having it sort of under our nurse staffing office, we moved it under this operations control center. And we staffed that with four RNs and one transporter and one patient care attendant. And we actually pull patients. And, and in particular, we look for patients who are going to home or home, uh, home with home health and we really focus on anyone who's getting close to that two-hour mark. So they've had their discharge order. They're approaching two o'clock. Let's pull them down to the lounge. And that's really worked well. Uh, we do teaching. We do medication reconciliation. We actually deliver medication. We deliver um, homegoing drugs to the discharge lounge. We also It's called our Meds to Beds program. 
but we can deliver it in advance of a patient's discharge to their room, or we can deliver it to the, the discharge lounge where we do a lot of that education. And that tactic has been great. And then we also focus on our weekend discharges. So especially for those services where your census is fairly stable, but your weekend discharges are quite a bit lower than your weekday discharges, those are additional new goals and reports that we're sharing with everyone to just understand what support do we need on the weekends so that we can execute those discharges. Because as you can imagine, your um, surgery schedule ha always peaks on Mondays and Tuesdays. And so if you've got a low discharge rate, and then of course we have, just like other uh, hospitals, a lot of patients come to the ED on a Monday night or on a Monday, and then you've got, you're converging with your busy surgery schedule and it creates a lot of borders in your ED. So we're always trying to streamline flow, get your discharges up on the weekends, and then make sure that you at least can even that out. And I'm sure many health systems that might be on this on this call or on this podcast know that borders in the ED are a real challenge and everyone's facing that challenge. And so that's where we're really trying to create the capacity so we can have less patients waiting for their beds in the ED. So lots of tactics around discharges. Tell me a little bit more about the data and where you're getting it from and how you're sharing it. Is it by floor? Is it going to like a bed czar? Is, is it going to the chief nursing officer? Like who's pushing to make sure that your processes are happening, that people are getting to the discharge lounge and within two hours of the DC order that patients are getting out of the hospital? So we actually have three huddles a day, and on most days I'm on all three. We start at 7.30, and we review any safety issues that happened uh, either over the weekend or overnight, and then we report out on capacity. And because it's been, it is such a challenge, uh, we want to know where we are in the morning. Is there anything that we have to do differently? Uh, do we have to sleep more people uh, overnight in the cath lab or in the PACU? You know, these are the kinds of discussions we have in the morning where we solve for what you just described is really our noon huddle. So we have a noon huddle where all the managers call in, we review all the safety events from the day before, and then um, and they report out. But then we look at anybody who's been over two hours who who we don't have a, have an understandable reason why they haven't gone to the lounge. How can we remove those barriers? And we'll, it, we don't spend a lot of time, probably 20 minutes on that huddle, um, but we do hit the capacity. And that's when we can talk to the managers about make sure you're using the discharge lounge, pull the patients, et cetera. We can give a capacity report. And then we have another one at four o'clock. And that's where we look at evening staffing, next day staffing, how many discharges have gone out? Do we need to do anything extraordinary? So I would say three um, different capacity touch points every day. And then on the weekends, we meet once a day. And then sometimes we'll have a staffing huddle. I would say that's how we're communicating. And then in our OCC, we've got great information boards where we're looking at our bed boards. We're looking at what's happening in the ED. We're looking at what's happening in radiology. We're looking at EDS, which is environmental services, where we're at in our transport queue. So that's really sort of where our house supervisors sit and are watching those boards. One's on transfers, one's watching all the boards and the movement, and the other one is watching the is managing the uh, the discharge lounge. So I would say we've really got three people looking at this at any one time. And our great health IT partners are the ones who helped us import this information from Epic. We do some predictive modeling uh, internally with our enterprise analytics group. So we have a fairly good sense every day what we're walking into, and then those touch points sort of keep us keep us current throughout the day. And then we have a lot of dashboards, again, that are pulled either from Epic or from our finance systems 
that we look at in Tableau that allow us to drill down by unit, by team, by by day, et cetera. So that's how we we've really got a nice a nice data system. And I'm sure you reward those those units that do an awesome job at getting patients through and out the door when they need to be discharged. Yeah. I know it's a lot of work on nurses and and sometimes because I'm a nurse, we would try to avoid discharges on our shift because we knew we would get a new patient. So. Sure. I mean, that's human. That's human nature. I think because we are at capacity, we're at about 95% capacity at midnight. That means we're more than 95% during the day. We're well over 100%. You know, we just have to keep it going. Again, we just, we want, we want to keep that ED safe. So we don't want to have um, extraordinary numbers of boarders uh, sitting in our, any of our, our ED pods. So that goes nicely into the next question about how does your hospital manage fluctuations in patient volumes to ensure optimal capacity and avoid the overcrowding? That's a challenge. I, w- I will say that the overcrowding, again, with some of those uh, weekly patterns, you know, the Monday, Monday influx from clinics and from other hospitals, along with a very tight surgery schedule, um, usually leads to our some of our highest numbers of boarders on Mondays and Tuesday nights. But we have an idle bed process, so we want to make sure we, we look at any time a bed is idle, and we try to run those processes in parallel rather than sequential. So we when you know as soon as a bed is empty, even before it's cleaned, it's assigned to the next patient. And then that automatically triggers your environmental service clean that then triggers uh, your transport. Um, request. Now, transports can't always be done for some patients who need a clinical provider, but otherwise, for somebody who doesn't need a a clinical transport, then we can get transport going. And then we want to make sure that we've got that nurse-to-nurse report that's happening happening sort of simultaneously to the next patient who's coming in the bed. So that idle bed process, we've written a lot of SOPs around, and we study that pretty carefully. And we're challenging all of our units, especially for for those elements that they can control, uh, to help. So the, the nurse-to-nurse report and being proactive on, on asking for that transport. So that's been that's been a, a, a great tactic. We also have, we have what we call landing pads. We've got some beds that are reserved. They're really more like treatment areas, but where we can bring in a transfer from an outside hospital. So again, being the, you know, level one trauma, you know, we get a lot of requests for a higher level of care. And so we want to be able to take those patients but if our ED is busy, but they have to go to a very specific unit, we've got landing pads in some of those key areas where we can pull that patient up because they need care right away. We also have just-in-time ICU beds. So we make sure that we're reserving one ICU bed per um, ICU type so that if we have to expedite a rapid response patient, those critical care teams can, can get that patient in quickly rather than trying to move around a lot of patients uh, and try to downgrade them into um to step down care. So that's been a, a big success. And as I, I think I mentioned earlier, we do sleep people in the PACU and cath lab overnight. Again, just trying to decant the ED. But one one thing we do, I think we have as a, as a tenant is to make sure that we're reducing the number of uh, lateral movements per patient. So sometimes you'll have, if you're above 85% capacity, you almost always have off-service patients sitting on other units. Um, and it's very tempting to want to then pick up that patient and move them to the right unit so you can create capacity, let's say, for that, the, the usual floor patient. But that's really not very patient-centered. That's that's more more unit-centered. And we really reduce those number of lateral movements. Uh, so it, Because truly, from a length of stay standpoint, it's more efficient to leave that patient in place because you're not 
transporting, you're not cleaning the room, you're not reassigning it. So you can save hours per movement. So that's been one of our tenants as we've been trying to manage these um, fluctuations. But it is a challenge. Weekends are always a little better and we get caught up and we can take more transfers on the on the weekends. But um, the beginning part of the week is, is our hardest, our hardest days to manage for sure. So those are some of the tactics that we use. So does your hospital have outpatients in a bed and post-ambulatory surgery, do you have surgeons asking for beds to monitor a patient for a condition that doesn't really mean, and what do you do about those? We do have extended recovery areas where we will recover a patient, but generally um, that's done in the PACU or in our outpatient uh, surgery area. Uh, we, we try to avoid the bedded outpatient in one of our inpatient beds because it's such a, such a scarce resource. So I think we do a nice job in the um, extended recovery area in our PACUs in our ambulatory surgery areas. Now, can you give me an example of a landing pad? Sure. So um, let me give you an example in our on our neuro care unit. So we will, you know, we we are a big stroke center, so we will get patients in through the ED who have to be monitored uh, very quickly. So this is a place where we can a treatment area where we can accept a patient, usually coming in from EMS, while we are perhaps using that just-in-time ICU bed, et cetera. So it's a safe place that is staffed. It's not a an overnight inpatient room, but it's a great place to sort of land patients. That's why we call them landing pads, to, to receive a patient, assess them quickly, get them to the right level of care. But it's on the right unit that that patient, you know, according to the patient's um, need for transfer. So neuro is a good example. You would bring a stroke patient in there. You could bring them up to the landing pad, assess them. That's after they're monitored in the ED, after they're um, usually scanned, um, but you know you need that patient on the room uh, on the unit. But you're in the in the midst of other discharges, so it's a it's a great staffed place for um, direct care while you're making that room. Interesting. So a, a long time ago, when I was a CCU nurse, we had a treatment room where patients would go to have like a biopsy done of their heart transplant. Um, so I'm guessing it's something like that, something and there was always that. a nurse assigned there. But yeah, it wasn't an actual patient room. Interesting. Right. Okay. Yeah, and it works well. Great. So what role does data analytics play in predicting patient admission rates and adjusting resources accordingly? Our health IT team did a great job of setting up our um, operations control center with all of these in the moment, big monitors so we could see, our, so we could check our status. And then we worked with our enterprise analytics group to help us predict based on our past experience. Uh, and it's, it's, it's pretty close. You know, it's not perfect, but it, it, it's, we do a, a good job of knowing how many patients, we, we certainly know how many we admitted yesterday and how many came from the clinic and, and, how many, and we know how many were discharged. And we know based on the patterns how, what our next day should look like. We also are able to look at our staffing and understand any staffing adjustments we may have to make up or down according to the predicted census. So I think that has worked very well, but we are um, engaging a partner in a more specific AI predicted model, predictive modeling for visibility uh, into our discharge milestones, staffing challenges. It'll, it'll give us a predictive census and uh, you know a really good listing of suggested discharges and movements along with alerting us when capacity is constrained or let's say that we've got we've got barriers that we can remove. So it, it's we're excited about this. We hope to have it installed in the next couple of months, but uh, it really establishes discharge ownership. And, you know, a lot of that lies in our OCC. 
and making sure that we've got standard communication with units about um, those that are discharged to home. And then it also helps us, and this is going to be very helpful, set our ancillary um, service priorities. So, you know, everybody needs something before they go home, but how you prioritize those between outpatients who are already here for, let's say, imaging, along with people who are discharge dependent and need a scan, or also identifying care that really should be provided as an outpatient, which is which is important. That relieves capacity and speeds up the discharge. So that's sort of the second bucket of work. And then we'll look at the, the length of day of stay standards. So real time length of stay management and predicting that length of stay. And then finally, really helping us with some rules based barrier management and making sure we've got standard escalation pathways. Because right now we rely on notes in Epic or you know, people remembering to uh, alert us if there's a barrier that we can remove. And this way, it'll be much more rules-based and much more visible. So we're excited, particularly about the AI piece of that um, modeling. Again, that staffing modeling is going to be really important too, because we're always making last-minute changes. So when you talk about the patient needing discharge milestones, and maybe the physician hasn't rounded yet or written the discharge order so would it send an alert to a physician, hey, you're just very plainly, but hey, your patient's vital signs are stable. They're at their um, geometric length of stay goal and all treatments are complete or something like that. Would it, does it alert the physician or it how can. does it? It can. And it really depends on how we want to set it up. So I think we would be in charge of those decisions. And there's still a lot to learn about this program, but we're the others that we have talked to, the other clients are very excited and saw a really nice reduction in length of stay. Um, I think we can set up those alerts however we want to. We would certainly have that at the OCC and probably the case management, um, you know, because some of those people are also in in surgery. So we may not want it to, the alerts to be there, but but we may to, let's say, the medical director of the unit, uh, you know, or, or we can have some kind of an escalation. Maybe it goes to making this up, but the unit manager first and then the case manager and then the resident and then the attending. Sounds complicated, but I think we can we can decide what that escalation um, pathway looks like. I think what you're talking about is a really is a mature state of the technology, which we would like to get to. Yeah, it seems really interesting in how AI is being brought into healthcare, and I think it's really important. And I know it's going to grow and grow and grow, but also making sure that the outputs are accurate. So I'll be curious to see. I have I have to interview again, Leanne. <laughs> so we've kind of spoken about this a little bit, but are there collaborations or partnerships with other healthcare facilities to facilitate patient transfers and alleviate those capacity constraints? And we kind of spoke a little bit about home health and SNP care. So is there anything more you want to add here? You know, what I would say here is also we are a system, as I mentioned before, seven hospitals and uh, we can offer, especially for um, transfers that have not yet, you know, that haven't been deployed. We may have a wait here or we're at capacity, but we can accept you, let's say, at the Wilson County Hospital or Tullahoma. And that's a choice. And it may actually be closer to the patient's home, which is great. And then I would mention that during COVID, we actually had a great uh, distribution system, as most big cities did, um, sort of evening out because we, everybody was at capacity how to share in the COVID transfers. And those relationships have continued. So there's a nice transfer algorithm among uh, among the local hospitals. But I would say, I would say, again, our great partnerships with Home Health and SNF, our hospital at home program, you know, we're pretty proud of. And then that sort of system transfer, making sure that we've got 
a way of understanding not just capacity at VUH, but also at all of the system hospitals where they may have capacity and they're ready for transfers. That's really worked out well and and uh, has really decanted. So I, I have a follow-up question to what you mentioned earlier, only because I've been in that role as well of UR case management, trying to ensure that patients are out of the hospital timely. But you mentioned very briefly that some of the payers are pushing back or not giving authorizations for a lower level of care. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how you're getting around that? Are the executives involved on pushing back on these insurance companies or why are they even doing that? Like, I I don't understand that. Well, I think some of it is just getting through the red tape and trying to get that approval before the weekend, right? Because you want to get it done, especially before a long holiday. Goodness, you know, otherwise you're going to have that patient for an extra three days. We've really pushed on weekend approvals this year, and we've had, I think, good success in getting those. We, of course, do peer-to-peer review with our physician UM colleagues, and they they do a great job. But I just, I think, you know, with some of our Advantage programs and some of our Medicaid programs, it's, it's just harder. You know, it's harder to get patients transferred in a timely manner. And mostly it's to, yeah, it is to that lower level of care, it's to that post acute uh, level of care. And then sometimes getting patients' agreements uh, is a bit of a challenge as well. So we want to make sure there's no surprises. Patients and families are aware, they're looking at different facilities, they've got choices. We try to do that as early as we can in the admission so that you're not trying to do all of that at the end. Um, but I would just say, I think that's a challenge for, you know, many hospitals. And then a lot of these places are full or the place that the patient wants to go is full. And so they're willing to wait. And that creates other challenges as well. And how does your hospital address the challenges of both complex patient cases that require an extended stay? And I'm just going to throw this other one at you, but social admits, that seems to be a problem at multiple facilities where Someone gets dropped off in the ED, the physicians don't feel the patient's safe to go home, and they need to go into a skilled nursing facility. All hospitals play their role in taking care of these patients. But I'm just curious what your hospital is doing to address the challenges of both the complex patient and the social admits. I'm not sure we're ever going to get away from those social admits. You know, as you said, they get dropped off. Family refuses to take them home. They can only be in the ED so long and and in a safe way. And and often they do go upstairs and and don't meet medical criteria. They'll stay in an op status. And that's a a challenge. Um, And it's a lot of work for our social workers and our case managers. Um, and, and, And we have the providers involved as well. So I'm not sure we're ever get completely away from that. But I think what we do want to watch for, again, our patterns, is it the same patient who keeps coming in? You know, I'll go back to that example I gave of patients who refuse a, a, a safe discharge. They don't meet inpatient criteria anymore. We've got a discharge location to them where they can go home, but they just don't want to go home. And then they'll appeal their discharge. You know, let's say it's a, a Medicare patient uh, and they have a chance to appeal it um, three times, and it takes a while for, uh, you know, Medicare to respond. And so, you know, we watch for patients who do that over and over again to make sure that as they're coming into the ED that we're prepared, having the right conversations. Again, that's why this hidden process is important about letting them know about the non-covered services. But I would just say we have those every week, just as every hospital does. And it's it's a challenge, and it's it's frustrating because... We know there are so many other patients who also need that bed, but uh, we have to wait until that patient really is safely discharged. The great news is we don't kick anybody out. We just do our best to get them to the right level of care. 
But I do think I do think that this um, this AI predictive analytic partner is going to be very helpful in helping us track it. Because again, you're really you know if patients float all around the hospital, you may not have that awareness at the top level that you need a different care plan or you need to manage them uh, differently. So I think just by having this data, it's going to be it's going to be really helpful. And the second part of that was the complex patient that requires extended stays. Is there anything else you want to add about that? We've got a lot of them, and and they are complex, both socially and medically. I mean, they've got really, uh, you know, in orbit from a behavioral health challenge. You know, many of our post-acute partners can't take them if their behavior is not controlled. And so trying to control them so that they're safe for discharge, and yet, uh, you know, it's a fine balance. Um, and we do have a lot of those patients, but we take care of them just like we take care of all of our patients. But it is ch- it is a challenge. A little bit different twist, but what steps are you taking to ensure smooth coordination between the different departments and care teams to expedite patient care and discharge planning? I know you've talked about the OCC case management, um, the three different people that are czars that kind of are looking at the capacity management. Is there anything else that you're doing in this area? Well, I would say, um, again, that idle bed tracking, making sure that I, I think by default it's easy to, in sequence, manage, uh, you know, a bed a bed assignment and then a bed clean and then a transport and then you give report and then the patient's in the bed. And that, that can take hours if you run it sequentially. So I think this goal to run them in parallel um, it's hard, but really challenging the units uh, on their own data, I think, has been really effective this year. And we also do, we've got a lot of uh, multidisciplinary team building that we do, especially on a unit or a team where we see that length of stay is creeping up. So getting our case managers and our unit-based management and our social workers and our nurses and providers and leaders together to to really deep dive. So so we'll have sort of lean events looking at some of some of that work. And that's really worked well, just not only just to build the team, but to make sure that all of the different care teams are working uh, together. And we do identify patients every day that are early discharged for the next morning. And and I think creating that um, synergy between the care providers and the case managers and the unit leaders has been really uh, effective as well. I think that I think everyone works well together. I think if we had the data in more real time about where those where those bottlenecks are, I think we could make, we'll, we'll take it to the next level. Wonderful. Is there anything else that you want to say about using technology-driven solutions or innovations that you guys have implemented? I know Epic is at a lot of healthcare systems, server. Is there anything within those EHRs that can assist versus going out and purchasing something else to work with your systems. Yeah, you know, we we are in Epic Shop and all of our dashboards are driven out of Epic. And so that works really well for us. You know, I would say we've got an overarching capacity committee uh, where we've got lots of providers and leaders and nurses on. And I think that we've got all sorts of report cards that we re- we review there, but we know um, the performance. We know whether we're meeting goal for EBS and transport and nurse report, et cetera. So we review that every month and the data comes from those dashboards. Again, they're transparent. Anyone can log into them and, a- and get access. So I would say it's a combination of, of great leadership in our OCC along with those EPIC-derived uh, dashboards that we have. The last question that I have for you, and then we'll see if there are any questions, is how does the hospital address the issue of readmissions 
and focus on providing efficient and effective post-discharge care? I would say we're actually doing very well on our readmissions. We um, always exceed our goal. And yet, again, as we said earlier, it's a fine balance of not making discharges seem so important that you're at risk of readmissions. I mean, we're going to always have some readmissions, but the good news is uh, we are below the standard rate. So we're pleased about that. But we have um, a, actually an interesting, we call it our, our Vanderbilt Discharge and Transitions uh, Program. So we call it VDAT, V-D-A-T, Vanderbilt Discharge and Transitions Team. It really has three work streams and it's about discharges and uh, transition, and then of course post-acute care. And we so we start off by the first work stream is making sure that everything a patient needs for a discharge is there. And again, this this center is staffed with nurses and social workers and pharmacists, et cetera, who are making sure that we've got medications to go home with, and that we're doing that medication reconciliation. That can be very confusing for a patient who came in with home meds had a bunch of medications and pharmaceuticals while they were here, and now what do they go home with and what do they take? So really making sure we're looking at those high-risk medications and educating the patient is important, making sure they have all the discharge paperwork and that it's complete and they know who to call. So that whole body of work, I think, was our initial work stream. And then our second one is really that transition, making sure that we have that we call the patient after discharge to make sure that they are doing uh, well, that they've got the follow-up appointments that they need, because sometimes, uh, you know, if you don't go home with a, with an appointment time, we want to make sure you're called with an appointment. And then if you need to have, a, you know, a telehealth visit, you can have one. Or if you need an e-consult order that, that you have access to that. And then the last one is just making sure that any to post-acute is well cared for. We can do telehealth at the post-acute care centers. We've got good partnership uh, with post-acute. And, and we've got complex care coordinators that are watching those patients to make sure they've got everything they need. And so this has been, um, it, it was stood up during COVID, not because of COVID, it was already in the plans. Um, but I think we've been able to um, decrease our readmissions by about 5%, uh, you know, from beginning to to where we're at right now. So it's been a, it's been a great success. It's been a, a big investment, but I think our patient experience, which is an important metric, has also, for those that are in this program, have has really improved statistically significant. So I think how we wrap up the discharges is really important. And I would also question, are you seeing better patient outcomes? Because now you're following up with these patients and they're getting to where they need to be. They're doing what they need to do. So a great question. I'm, I would hope so because there's less readmissions. Um, tying the two together is a little bit harder, but I think it's been a, I think it's been a good success. Well, I, I think you and your facility are doing a fantastic job at capacity management. It sounds like you have a lot going on. I've learned a lot of things from landing pads to your idle bed process. Um, I'm really curious about the AI piece. I love that you give data to your physicians and your clinicians using all your dashboards, this VDAT. I mean, there's so much going on there. It's great. So I love it. I don't know if there are any questions. Oh, how does ED capacity have to adjust during a sudden influx of patients, such as a mass casualty incident or large event in the city? We are the level one trauma center here uh, in Nashville. So we are the recipient of those um, circumstances, of those large uh, situations. And we do adjust. We have um, surge spaces that are not just in the hospital, but in our uh, partnership clinics. We do have uh, tents that we can put out front, both for waiting or uh, for caring for patients. 
if we do have a, a natural surge, let's say it's not related to a mass casualty event, we add additional monitors out into the ED to make sure that we um, always have eyes on our patients. So, you know, if we go in excess of, of X people in the waiting room, we have more nurses out front visualizing them because you just don't want to have anyone deteriorate. So we have got a great activation plan. We've got places for families to wait. We've got places to move patients. Um, we've got trauma teams on the ready. So we're quite used to that. But that's a great question. Yeah, and I think most facilities do have disaster plans, kind of not that this is specifically a disaster, but when you do have a large influx that your teams know what to do and practice beforehand. We do. We do have drills. The second question is, do you have recommendations on giving feedback to physicians and physician leaders when it comes to the data and reports? You know, here would be my feedback. We really want to arm our physicians with data. And I think we have a fresh approach in especially focusing on something like length of stay. They've seen the capacity information for a long time. But, you know, when you get to length of stay, it's personal, uh, you know, because you're talking about their areas or you might be talking about themselves. And so our surgery segment really let out on this work. And they have individual meetings with chairs and our segment leaders to share the data and to ask them how they want to see it. How do they want to receive the data? So my feedback would be to customize that to the extent that you can so that it's digestible and important to them. And so that's how we got to uh, looking at it by um, department to then by care team, then by CPT. Because if you've got subspecialized surgeons, they want to see uh, the data that's relevant to them. And so we've been very transparent. You know, we, we leave it up to the chairs or the clinical leaders to then share the provider level detail, whether they want it blinded or, or open as they wish. And, and we are often there to go through the data and explain it. But even by going through the data, we learn as well. You know, that's how we sort of caught this opportunity with some of our comorbidities and conditions uh, that we could maybe talk to our documentation specialist about enhancing so that it was really reflective of the intensity of the service. So we, we do it in small groups and in a partnership way, in, in a learning together uh, manner so that, you know, there's nobody feels like they're put on stage or in trouble because nobody's in trouble. We're just trying to take it to the next level. Um, we're already uh, at our um, and, and often doing better than our expected length of stay, but we're just trying to figure out how do we take it to the next level to create the additional capacity that everybody is demanding. We are building more beds, and so that's going to be great. We're going to, we've got a big capital project, uh, and those beds should be online in another year or two. You know, we're sort of in the middle of, of that, and that will create capacity, which will help. I think what we all worry about is those beds will be filled the moment that they are available. Uh, we added three units um, several years ago, and as soon as, as soon as they were open, they were filled. So we, we anticipate that it's going to be this never-ending need for capacity, but anything we can do to create space and, and reduce length of stay is just better for everybody, especially the patient. It is. And see, you're helping the physicians feel and become stars at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Yeah. Well, those were all the questions, and I don't see any more. Leanne, I have so enjoyed interviewing you and hearing about what you're doing at Vandy and making it a better place and better outcomes for your patients. Thank you so much. Well, it was my pleasure being with you today and always great to see you. And uh, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for including me and inviting me. Thank you all.